When Jesus came, he said and did many things that the Jews did not expect and often did not like. He healed people on the Sabbath. Some of the Jews got mad about that. He ate with tax collectors and sinners. Some of the Jews got mad about that. He forgave sins. They wondered who in the world he thought he was to be able to do something like that. But among the most surprising things he said are these words from Matthew 8, 11, and 12. He said, I tell you, many will come from east and west and recline at table with Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob in the kingdom of heaven, while the sons of the kingdom will be thrown into the outer darkness. In that place there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. Now think about what Jesus just said there with me for a moment. Jesus is speaking to the Jews, and when he talks about the sons of the kingdom, that's who he's talking about, the Jews. And he says to the Jews, many Gentiles, many pagans, many people from east and west, they're going to be in the kingdom of heaven feasting, celebrating, fellowshipping with Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, while a lot of the Jews are in hell. That was a shocking and surprising thing for the Jews to hear. And Paul is saying something quite similar in chapter 2 of Romans, which is where we'll be this morning. If you'll turn in your Bibles With me to Romans chapter 2, we're going to try to finish this chapter this morning looking at verses 25 to 29. In this chapter already, uh, Paul has uh, told the people of Israel, told the Jews, right, that um, they're going to be judged according to their works, just like the Gentiles are. He has told them that having the law, hearing the law, does not make them righteous, does not secure their salvation. Right? He has told them that they are hypocrites, that the law that they are so proud of, that they teach other people, which is a good law that God gave them, they break that law. And by breaking that law, they actually bring dishonor on God among the Gentiles. And yet, along the way, he has also been indicating that there are Gentiles who have come to faith in Christ who are now living up to, by the power of the Spirit, living up to what the Jews have not been able to do. And this morning, in these last verses of chapter 2, Paul is going to address one more area where the Jews felt like they had significant superiority and security. And that was in their circumcision. That the Gentiles, they were the uncircumcision. The Jews, they were the circumcised ones. And in that, they thought they were superior and they thought they had security. But Paul says to them, no, not even there. Outside of Christ, nothing that you have as Jews is going to ultimately do you any good. Let me read for us Romans 2, 25 to 29. Paul says, For circumcision indeed is of value if you obey the law. But if you break the law, your circumcision becomes uncircumcision. So if a man who is uncircumcised 
keeps the precepts of the law, will not his uncircumcision be regarded as circumcision? Then he who is physically uncircumcised, but keeps the law, will condemn you who have the written code and circumcision, but break the law. For no one is a Jew who is merely one outwardly, nor is circumcision outward and physical. But a Jew is one inwardly, and circumcision is a matter of the heart by the Spirit, not by the letter. His praise is not from man, but from God. So what Paul is going to be addressing here at the end of this chapter is, who really counts as a Jew? Who is really, truly a Jew, one of the members of the people of God? And he begins to answer this question by uh, talking about circumcision. Now, if you've read the New Testament very carefully, especially if you've read Romans and Galatians and Acts, you know that circumcision was a big deal for the Jews, and it was a big deal in the early church, trying to sort out... Do Gentiles who become Christians, do they need to be circumcised in order to be saved? And when you read those discussions and you read those lengthy explanations and answers to those questions, you might wonder, why was this such a big deal? Right? Why was circumcision such a big deal in the first place? And the reason it was a big deal is because circumcision goes back not just to the law, It goes all the way back to Abraham. And God gave the sign of circumcision to Abraham as a sign of the covenant that he made with him and with all his descendants after him. So in Genesis 17, here's what what God says to Abraham. He says, this is my covenant, which you shall keep between me and you and your offspring after you. Every male among you shall be circumcised. You shall be circumcised in the flesh of your foreskins, and it shall be a sign of the covenant between me and you. He who is eight days old among you shall be circumcised. Every male throughout your generations, whether born in your house or bought with your money from any foreigner who is not of your offspring, both he who is born in your house and he who is bought with your money shall surely be circumcised. So shall my covenant be in your flesh an everlasting covenant." Right, so the main thing to notice there is that God is saying that circumcision is a sign of the covenant between Abraham and all Abraham's offspring and God. Right, So this is a sign of their covenant relationship, a sign that they belong to God, that they are God's people and that they are in a special relationship with God. So they thought a lot about this. They thought this was significant. This is what set them apart from the Gentiles. But Paul says here... Your circumcision is of value if you obey the law. Why would that be the case? Well, circumcision is a sign of the covenant God made with Abraham. But then after that covenant, God made another covenant with Israel. Right, The covenant he made with them at Sinai when he gave them the law and the Ten Commandments and all the other laws. Right, And they were meant to obey all those laws. That was part of the covenant. We, Israel said, we will obey whatever God says. Right? So they have to obey the covenant. And circumcision is the sign of the fact that they're in covenant with God. So if you break the covenant you have with God, what good is the sign of that covenant? 
Not much good at all, right? If you're keeping the covenant, sign of the covenant's great. Good to have that. There is some gain in that. But if you're breaking the covenant, having the sign of the covenant doesn't do you a whole lot of good. In fact, Paul says, if you break the law, your circumcision becomes uncircumcision. You're basically counted as somebody uncircumcised if you break the covenant that you have with God. So you're just like a Gentile. If you're not keeping the law, you're not really much better off than the Gentiles are. That also was a shocking thing for Paul to say. right? But think about it this way. Think about it like a wedding ring. Wedding ring is a sign that you're married. Now, if you run off and commit adultery and leave your spouse, you can keep wearing your wedding ring if you want to. But what good does it do you? What does it, really, what does it mean at that point? Not a whole lot of anything. right? Think about baptism. Right? Baptism is an outward sign of our new relationship with God, right? We're in baptism, it's pictured that we have been buried with Christ, our old self is dead, we've been raised to newness of life because we now belong to Christ, we're new creations. That's what baptism pictures. But baptism itself doesn't save us, right? It's a sign that we belong to the people of God. It's a, it's a symbol, it's an outward act of something that is happened internally. Now Paul says in the New Testament in more than one place that if you live according to the flesh, you will not inherit the kingdom of God. Right? You can say you're a Christian all day long, but if you are, if your life is characterized by idolatry or sexual immorality or adultery or drunkenness or whatever, you're not going to inherit the kingdom, Paul says. So we could imagine similarly in that case, we could say If you are living according to the flesh, you're not following Christ, you show no evidence of having new life with Christ, but you say, well, but I've been baptized. What good is that? What good does your baptism do you if you don't really belong to Christ, if you're not really following Christ? It's it's a sign. The sign is only helpful if the reality is there. If the reality is not there, the sign does you no good. Right? Now, all those, those illustrations break down at some point. Don't press them too far. But the basic idea right, is clear enough. If you have the sign, but not the real thing, the sign is basically worthless. Right? That's what Paul is saying. If you have the sign of the covenant, circumcision, but you don't keep the covenant, you're basically like somebody who doesn't have the sign of the covenant. Right? You're a covenant breaker anyway. So circumcision is not, uh, not going to help you as much as you think it is, he's saying to the Jews. right? After all, you're breaking the law, you're breaking the covenant, so what good is that? Then he says, the flip side of that is also true in verse 26. So, if a man who is uncircumcised keeps the precepts of the law, will not his uncircumcision be regarded as circumcision? So if you Jews don't keep the law and you're counted as somebody who's uncircumcised, what about somebody who's not circumcised but is keeping the law? Is God going to reject them just because they don't have the sign, because they're not circumcised? Won't they be counted as though they were circumcised because they're doing the main thing, which is keeping the law? Yeah, of course he will. That makes sense, right? The question is, is there anybody like that? There is. We've 
pointed out as we've gone through chapter 2, that Paul seems to have in mind already at this point, though he hasn't explained it as fully as he will in chapter 3 and chapter 4, he seems to already have in mind the truth that there are Gentiles who have turned from their sin and they have trusted in Christ and they are now empowered by the Spirit to fulfill the law, to obey the law in ways that unbelieving Jews can't and haven't and don't. Right? And so when Paul here says, if a man who is uncircumcised keeps the precepts of the law, will not his uncircumcision be regarded as circumcision? I think he's saying, think about the Gentiles who aren't circumcised, but they are Christians, and they have the Holy Spirit dwelling in them, and now they fulfill the law, like Paul's going to talk about in Romans 8, 4, how uh, we fulfill the law by the Spirit now, how he talks about this in In Galatians, how we're called to fulfill the law by loving one another, which we are empowered to do now by the Holy Spirit. I think that's what he's talking about here. Because if he's not talking about a real situation, his argument doesn't have a whole lot of force. The Jews could just say, well, yeah, I mean, I guess that would be true, but it's not true because nobody does that. Paul, I think Paul is saying there are people who do this. There are Gentiles who have believed in Christ, who are fulfilling the law, not perfectly, but truly in ways that you unbelieving Jews don't do. And we'll see more about that as as we go. But I think that's what he's saying here. I think that's what he's arguing here. And another reason why I think that is because of this little word, regarded. Will Will not his uncircumcision be regarded as circumcision? That word is the same word that shows up multiple times all through chapter 4. There it's usually translated reckoned or counted. It's the same word that shows up all through chapter 4 when Paul says that God counts the ungodly as righteous. Right? That he counts us as our sins being forgiven. That he counts us as justified. It's the language of justification. Right? Being reckoned as something that you're not. You're not holy, you're not righteous, you're not sinless, but God reckons you, counts you righteous, holy, sinless, by faith in Christ. That's the word he uses to describe that over and over and over. And so when he says here in chapter 2, will not his uncircumcision be reckoned, counted, regarded as circumcision, he's using the language of justification. He's saying, won't God count that imperfect, sinful Gentile who is now a new creation in Christ, who is fulfilling the law now by the power of the Spirit, isn't he going to count them as though they were circumcised, as though they were a Jew, as though they were a member of the people of God, the family of God through Abraham, even though technically they're not right, descended from Abraham? Yes, he will. Right, so, uh, so Paul is making very clear to the Gentiles here Do not bank on your circumcision. Do not think that you are safe, that you are saved, that you are secure, merely because you have the outward sign of being part of the people of God. Just like we would tell people today, don't think that your baptism saves you. Don't think that because you got wet, you're for sure going to go to heaven. Getting dunked in the water, that's a sign of... Of the, sal- of the salvation that happens internally, right? That God does for you and in you. 
And if that hasn't happened, you can get dunked in the water as many times as you want. It's not going to do you any good. Right? That's what Paul's saying to the Gentiles about, or the Jews about circumcision. <clears throat> right? Then he says, he just, Paul doesn't let up. Right? Paul, Paul does not pull any punches. He takes this one step further in verse 27 when he says, Then he who is physically uncircumcised but keeps the law will condemn you who have the written code and circumcision, but break the law. Not only are Gentile, uncircumcised Gentiles going to be counted as though they were circumcised, they are also going to stand up and judge you Jews who have circumcision and the law, but don't keep them. This is also very similar to what Jesus said to the Jews. Right? Paul is not making this up on his own. Right? Paul is in many ways echoing things that Jesus said in his own ministry. For example, Matthew 12, 41 and 42, Jesus said to the Jews, he said, The men of Nineveh, which those are pagans, those are Assyrians, those are the bad guys in the Old Testament, right? The men of Nineveh, will rise up at the judgment with this generation and condemn it. For they repented at the preaching of Jonah, and behold, something greater than Jonah is here. The queen of the south, another Gentile, will rise up at the judgment with this generation and condemn it. For she came from the ends of the earth to hear the wisdom of Solomon, and behold, something greater than Solomon is here. So he says to the Jews of his own day, Jesus says, I'm the Son of God, right? I have come among you. I am preaching the truth and I'm calling you to repentance. I am your salvation, your deliverer, your savior, and you won't listen to me. You won't repent and turn to me. You won't believe me. You won't receive me. And so here's what you need to know there is coming a day on the day of judgment. When those Assyrians in Nineveh who repented at the preaching of Jonah are going to condemn you because I'm greater than Jonah. Jonah came and they repented. I came and you didn't repent. The queen of Sheba came all the way from wherever it was that she was queen to Jerusalem to see Solomon just to hear his wisdom. I am the embodiment of wisdom. I am the way and the truth and the life. And I am among you and you won't seek me. And you won't listen to me. You won't give up anything to follow me. And so the Queen of Sheba is going to rise up on the day of judgment and condemn you Jews who wouldn't seek your own Messiah and listen to the wisdom of your own Messiah. Paul's saying the same thing. The Gentiles who have repented at the preaching of Paul and Peter and others and have turned to Christ and received the forgiveness of sin and been filled with the Holy Spirit, they're going to rise up on the day of judgment and condemn the Jews who heard the gospel of Christ and rejected it because they thought all they needed was to be circumcised. All they needed was to know that somewhere back in their family tree was a guy named Abraham. And because of that, they were good. Paul says the Gentiles who have repented at the preaching of the gospel are going to condemn you Jews who won't believe the gospel because you think you don't need it. 
And the same is true for people who think they're going to go to heaven because they're members of a church or because they've been baptized or because somebody in their family was a deacon or they're riding on the coattails of their spouse or whatever. If you don't repent and trust in Christ, no morality, no religion, no outward sign is going to do you any good. Those things can be good if you have the real thing too. But if all you have is the outward stuff, it's not going to help. It's not going to help. So if you don't take anything else away from these sermons in Romans 2, don't miss the truth that outward religious observance and ritual and privilege and position that none of those can save you from the wrath of God. Only Jesus can. Only Jesus can. Now, that takes us to the last thing Paul says here in verses 28 and 29. And these verses are huge. If you're inclined to underline in your Bible, I'd encourage you to underline 28 and 29. These are very significant verses. And Paul is really here just scratching the surface of things that he is going to unpack more fully in the rest of the letter. right? Um, And especially when dealing with the Jews in Romans 9 and 10 and 11. But notice what he says here. Here is where he describes who the true Jew is. He says in verse 28, No one is a Jew who is merely one outwardly, nor is circumcision outward and physical. Uh, Even circumcision, which is a sign in the flesh, Paul says is not ultimately an outward physical thing. It's meant to be an internal thing, an inward thing. Being a Jew, he says, is not merely an outward thing. And he'll say this again, uh, or something very similar to this, later in Romans chapter 9, verse 6 and 8, when he says, it is not as though the word of God has failed, right? Lots of the Jews have not believed. What are we to make of that? It is not as though the word of God has failed, for not all who are descended from Israel belong to Israel. And not all are children of Abraham because they are his offspring. But through Isaac shall your offspring be named. This means that it is not the children of the flesh who are the children of God, but the children of the promise are counted as offspring. And that would take a whole other sermon to unpack those few lines. But Paul is saying basically the same thing there as he's saying here, which is that being a Jew is about more than being descended from Abraham. Right? Abraham's offspring are not reckoned according to the flesh. They're reckoned according to the promise. So you can be physically descended from Abraham and not be a true Jew, not be a true child of God, not truly belong to the people of God. Isn't that what Paul or what Jesus was saying to the Jews in John chapter 8? We read earlier uh, in the service. What do you mean? We have a different father than you. Abraham is our father. And Jesus says, no. No, because Abraham believed God. And you don't believe me. So you're not acting like Abraham, which means you're not Abraham's father. You know who you are acting like? You are acting like the devil. The devil is your father. You can be a Jew... And belong to the family of Satan. That's what Jesus is saying. When you put it like that, Paul's words don't seem so radical. 
Right? He's just saying the same kinds of things that Jesus said. Right? So he says, being a Jew is not merely an outward thing. Even being circumcised is not meant to be merely an outward and physical thing. Instead, verse 29, but a Jew is one inwardly, and circumcision is a matter of the heart by the Spirit, not by the letter. In other words, real circumcision is a heart matter, not a flesh matter. And this is evident even in the Old Testament. In Deuteronomy 10, 15, and 16, Moses tells the people of Israel, The Lord set His heart in love on your fathers and chose their offspring after them, you above all peoples, as you are this day. Circumcise therefore the foreskin of your heart and be no longer stubborn. In other words, You are part of that people that God chose and set apart and He gave the gift of circumcision and all of that. And yet you're stubborn and rebellious and you are uh, sinning against the Lord. So you need a circumcised heart. Circumcised flesh is not cutting it. That's not good enough. You need your heart changed, your heart circumcised so that you will obey the Lord. And then later in chapter 30 of Deuteronomy, verse 6, God says, or Moses says, the Lord your God will circumcise your heart and the heart of your offspring so that you will love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul that you may live. In other words, you're not going to love God with all your heart and your soul just because you've been circumcised in the flesh. The only way that's going to happen is if you've been circumcised in your heart. Well, how does that happen? Well, Paul tells us here, and he just gives us sort of some, what we might call some theological shorthand here. He tells us that this is a new covenant reality, and it is the work of the Spirit. When he says, a Jew is one inwardly, and circumcision is a matter of the heart, by the Spirit, not by the letter. That Spirit-letter contrast, he, he expands that uh, idea in 2 Corinthians chapter 3, when he contrasts the Old Covenant law where the words of the law were written on stone versus the new covenant now that Christ has come where God gives us new hearts, hearts of flesh, right? And so when he contrasts that spirit versus letter, right? Spirit versus word, he's saying the old covenant law, which was external, couldn't change you, right? Couldn't change you at the level of the heart. That that kind of circumcision doesn't cut it. But new covenant circumcision, which is internal, which is a work of the Holy Spirit, it's not something that you can do, not something any man can do for you, something only the Spirit can do. It's that circumcision that counts, that circumcision that makes you truly a Jew, that makes you a member of the people of God. It is the work of the Spirit, and it is internal. And Paul says that person, the end of verse 29, his praise is not from man, but from God. And this, I think, is really what the whole matter boils down to. His praise is not from man, but from God. Where are you seeking praise? Where are you seeking glory? Remember Paul said earlier in this chapter that the ones who seek glory, not selfish glory, but the glory that comes from God, the ones who by persevering and doing good seek glory and honor and immortality, they are the ones who God will give eternal life. Paul is saying here, those who are not concerned primarily about what other people think of them. See all my outward signs? I've been circumcised. 
I've got my family tree going back to Abraham. I'm a Jew. I dress like a Jew. I look like a Jew. I'm hourly a Jew. So people will praise me. This is how the Pharisees acted, a lot of them, right? All about outward representation. And Jesus said, inside, you're unclean, you're dead, you're defiled, you're far from God. But people like tax collectors and prostitutes and sinners who came before God brokenhearted, convicted of their sin, and cried out for mercy, God said, those are the ones who are justified. Those are the ones who are righteous before me. It's, it's very much like what, Paul, what God says about, um, about David in 1 Samuel 16, 7, when he's about to have Samuel anoint David as the king. He says, the Lord sees not as man sees. Man looks on the outward appearance, but the Lord looks on the heart. You can do all the outward religious stuff. You can appear moral. You can appear godly. You can have all the outward trappings of religion and be dead on the inside. And nobody else will know it for a time, maybe. But God knows it. What God cares about is not how do other people see you. What God cares about is what do I see in your heart? Have you recognized your own sin? Have you been broken for your sin? Have you called out to me, maybe where nobody else heard, and said, God, I need your mercy, I need your forgiveness, I need your grace, I need salvation, I need to be made righteous, I'm helpless without you? Nobody else might have seen that, but God sees that. And God sees the work of His Spirit inside of you that not everybody else can always see. Eventually it comes out in the fruit of the Spirit, right? But nobody can know for sure what God has done in your heart, but God and you. Paul's saying the person who is truly a Jew has the Spirit, has been inwardly circumcised, fulfills the law, doesn't keep the law perfectly, nobody can do that, but is genuinely following the Lord and living a life that pleases Him, and when He fails, is repenting and and confessing his sin, and that kind of person, God commends, God praises, even if nobody else does. So none of this means, right? none of this means that God has no more place or plan for the Jews as such. And again, we'll see God's plan for the Jewish people in Romans 9 and 10 and 11. But it does mean that those who belong to the people of God, those who are true children of Abraham, even those who we could say are truly Jews, are those people whom God has forgiven and made new. Because at the end of the day, that's all that really matters, is the work of God in your heart. Has God saved you? Has Christ changed you? Has the Spirit taken up residence in you? Apart from calling out to Him for that salvation, by faith alone, nothing else you do is going to do you any good. Uh, And that's what Paul seeks to make so clear in this letter. So that as he explains the gospel, as he explains what Christ has done for us, we will see that that event, right? Jesus' death and Jesus' resurrection provides for us everything that we need and we'll know that we need it. That's the goal. Let's pray.